A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to our latest mini episode where we continue with season one of The Leftovers, this time focusing on episode eight, Cairo. My name is Justin Hamilton and I just found my white shirts here at Big Squid. very much for spending some time with me as we continue looking into season one of The Leftovers. It's been a fun ride so far and we're really getting to the business end of this season. I'll uh, tell you a little bit more about where my headspace was at when we get to the final episode in this season. More talking about how it was being perceived in the rest of the world and also what I kind of thought might happen next or might not happen next, which is more of the case. But anyway, we will dig into that as we get further along. This is a juicy episode, so I'm looking forward to unpacking this with you. Uh, Before we do, don't forget, I also have a big interview with author Ryan Hughes coming up next Tuesday. You know from previous episodes of this podcast how much I loved his book XX, a novel graphic. So if you were XX curious, you can start reading now before the podcast comes out. Or maybe you want to just listen to Ryan talk about stuff and then get your head around the novel. There's, There's some spoilers, nothing major, like just little plot points are touched upon. There are a couple of times where he sort of suggested that he was giving things away, but I don't think he did. I think he does a really good job of uh, covering uh, up some of the things that he's talking about. But also, the chat is interesting from a design point of view and just his own history and his uh, attitude towards the work that he does. So it's, it's not just about the novel, it's about Ryan Hughes as well. And I can't tell you how rapt I am to present that to you next week. So just a heads up, that'll be next Tuesday. You've got a bit of time to start the novel. You might have it in your hands and think, holy shit, this is a big book. But it's 
it's really easy to read. Like it's a page turner. So you can probably get a, a fair way into it before the podcast comes out. Okay. Enough about what's coming up. We are here now. We are talking about episode eight of season one of The Leftovers. This is the episode entitled Cairo. Everything about the 14th of October. The great vanishing, the sudden departure. I mean, come on. What else is there to think about? I need you to tell me everything that happened last night. This was all your idea. Why do you carry a gun? What? You taking a nap? Did something stupid. I don't know what's happening to me. Do you know what he's doing? You can't let him! Bang, bang. We open on Kevin as he prepares his table for dinner. At the same time, Patty begins her preparations as she lays clothes out on the floor of their church. Each item is laid in a particular order, form taking shape in the holiest of places. Kevin and Patty, diametrically opposed, both carrying out their rituals. Patty hands Laurie some money and writes, Ready? Meanwhile, Nora is the guest at the Garvey's and sits next to Kevin, but opposite Jill and Amy. The table is a divide between the women. Amy asks Nora about the government questions she asks for the people who have lost their loved ones to the sudden departure. There is an edge to her questions, but Nora answers honestly. Jill takes it one step further and asks Nora about the gun in her handbag. Nora answers Jill and lets her look through her bag to see that there isn't a gun there anymore. I used to carry one, Nora says. It made me feel better, but I don't need it anymore. Kevin is mortified and insists Jill apologises. She does, but it is short, curt, made because she was told to apologise, not because she wants to. In the background, Otis Redding's I've Got Dreams to Remember plays. You should remember this song. Lock that away for later. When Nora leaves, she tells Kevin it will get better. How? he asks. I don't know, she replies. Kevin goes to bed and falls into a deep sleep. He wakes to a sudden knocking and when he opens his eyes, he's in a car looking at Dean. She's still out, Dean says. Kevin follows Dean into a cabin in a forest and discovers Paddy inside, tied up, unconscious. What has happened to Kevin this time? Back in Mableton, Megan is attacking Matt, breaking her vow of silence, screaming, covered in his blood. He has information on my mother, on all of us, she yells to everyone. Laurie takes her to one side and quietly reprimands her. This is not the way of the guilty remnant, who are supposed to be above such reactions, beyond petty emotion. Besides, they have a plan to carry out. Back at the cabin, Kevin desperately attempts to find out from Dean what happened the night before. He has flashes, but these moments are incoherent and only hint at the story of the night. Dean soon realises that Kevin doesn't remember much at all. This was your idea, he says to Kevin. They'd been drinking some beers at the bar, were on their way home when they saw Paddy, and Kevin suggested they abduct her for all the trouble she's caused the town. Once they had her, they drove to Cairo, a place from Kevin's childhood. Dean did this because they're friends. In fact, the last time they spent time together, Kevin made a bet with him that he could rehabilitate the mad dog 
in his backyard, and if he were correct, Dean had to stop shooting them. Kevin doesn't remember this either, but it does explain why the dog is in his backyard. As Kevin begins to realise the trouble he is in, Paddy awakens. Kevin attempts to apologise to reconcile, but she spits in his face and declares that she doesn't forget. She won't forget. She can't forget. And in fact, she will report him to the authorities knowing he will lose everything. Back in Mapleton, Meg watches TV where the news claims there's been a miraculous resurrection in Somalia where Allied tanks arrive on the outskirts of Darfid to discover a mass grave empty. She argues with Laurie over her violent impulses. Laurie believes it is a sign of weakness. Laurie insists that Meg go and apologise to Matt. They go to his place and find not only Matt but his sister Nora attending to Matt's wife. Meg apologises and Matt accepts. He knows Meg is in pain because her mum died the day before the sudden departure. Meg's grief was hijacked by world events. She has a right to be angry. The two members of the guilty remnant begin to leave, but before they can do so, Nora calls to Laurie. Hey Laurie, while you're giving out apologies, I had dinner with your daughter. You should apologise to her. Nora isn't weak, she's full of fire and indignation. She would love her children to be with her, how can Laurie abandon hers? The next day, Jill and Amy argue about Nora. It seems Jill can't begin to comprehend that Nora is telling the truth, that there is no way she can be fine. Jill doesn't know about Nora's encounter with Holy Wayne, that cathartic moment with the charlatan, the shyster, the man who read her pain, etched into her eyes and lines upon her skin. Amy calls Jill out for this, and in retaliation, Jill asks Amy if she fucked her father. Amy is offended and returns the fire before leaving her friend and the twins behind. Back in the cabin, Kevin, Paddy and Dean are caught in a stalemate. Dean wants to know about the Guilty Remnant organisation. Paddy finds Dean fascinating because she can't find any information on him. She likens him to a ghost. Dean prefers to think of himself as a guardian angel. Outside, Kevin and Dean argue about what to do with Paddy. You want to end this, Dean reminds Kevin. I don't want to hurt her, Kevin replies. Dean wishes Kevin would go back to sleep because he needs that other guy. There is no other guy, Kevin responds angrily but with little conviction. There has to be another Kevin. How else can he explain this situation he finds himself in? Back in Mableton, Jill and the twins break into Nora's house and look through the rooms, looking for the gun, looking for proof that justifies Jill's suspicions. The twins find the Kevlar suit and Jill finds the gun hidden in the room of her departed children under a bed in a box for the game Trouble. Jill sits on the bed holding the gun and quietly weeps. The intruders eventually leave just as Nora's phone rings. The answering machine records the call. It is Kevin calling from the forest in Cairo. He's worried he's totally messed up and that he needs Nora. Unfortunately, he's in a place with bad reception and the message barely even registers. Suddenly, Kevin notices something out the corner of his eye. He walks to a clearing and finds an old fire, boots and his white shirts nailed to the trees. Kevin realises he's been here many times in recent times and begins to punch the trees in fear, anguish, anger. Kevin has found his place where he carries out his true secret rituals. 
He walks back to the cabin and decides to let Paddy go, that it will be her word against his, and let's be honest, who's everyone going to believe? The head of the guilty remnant or the local police chief? But when he returns, he discovers Dean has wrapped a plastic bag around her head and she is slowly suffocating. Kevin and Dean fight. Kevin rips a hole in the bag so Paddy can breathe and Dean, in disgust, decides to leave. Now Kevin and Paddy are on their own. Mapleton is a hive of activity. Meg continues to speak aloud, much to Laurie's frustration. Meg is angry about what Nora said to Laurie, as if she has no right to speak that way. I wish I could see her face on Memorial Day. Laurie slaps Meg's face. Shh, stop talking. A truck pulls up and delivers packages wrapped in plastic. They remove the packages from the truck and take them inside the church where the clothes that Paddy has lain out on the floor wait. Nora returns home and attempts to listen to the message on the answering machine, but it crackles and drops out. She walks upstairs and finds the gun out of the box on the bed where Jill left it. She must know Jill has been in her home. Did Jill leave it deliberately? Is this her way of telling Nora she knows she's lying when she says she's better now? Did Jill even make a conscious decision? She returns home to find Amy moving out and appears to barely register emotionally with her. Alone, Jill walks outside with a knife and cuts the rope that keeps the stray dog tied up in the backyard. Jill says go, and the dog runs away into the night, into the dark. Jill has made a decision. There is only one place that she can go now. Her father has disappeared and her best friend has abandoned her. And when she appears at the door of the guilty remnant, Laurie registers a look that is difficult to read. Just moments earlier, she was taking charge to carry out Paddy's plan. Laurie looked confident in her convictions. Now, with her daughter arriving, Laurie looks confused, scared, saddened. What plans are the guilty remnant about to put into play? And where is Paddy? In the cabin, Kevin and Paddy talk. She wants him to understand that the guilty remnant are living reminders of what everyone tries to forget. This is why Laurie joined their ranks. Kevin rejects this. He believes it is because he failed his wife. Paddy knows about his affair. Where Paddy once confessed to Laurie after the day of the sudden departure, the roles reversed. Paddy admits they were the ones who murdered Gladys so she could be another reminder. Laurie is ready too. Paddy believes Kevin isn't far behind. All he needs is a little push that she wants him to commit to understanding what is happening, not just to the two of them, but to everyone in Mapleton. You don't have to hide from me, says Paddy. Kevin pulls out a knife and approaches Paddy. He cuts her loose and tells her that she's not going to tell anyone about what has happened in this cabin because he's going to tell the authorities. He knows he needs help and the first step to any sort of recovery is the honesty of admitting you're in trouble. He looks at Paddy and tells her, no, I don't understand you. Kevin turns away from her and fails to see the glass shard that Paddy has found on the floor. Kevin... You do understand, says Paddy as she cuts her throat. Kevin catches Paddy as blood spills from her neck, cradling her body as her life slips away. Whew, what an ending, right? This episode begins with an interesting juxtaposition between Kevin and Paddy, all set to Alvin Ailey's I've Been Buked. As they go about their rituals, we hear the lyrics about being scorned, but regardless of the trouble in the world, they're not going to lose their religion. 
Paddy is steadfast in her belief that the sudden departure has given her a clarity that a lot of our characters would love to own. Kevin is the opposite of Paddy. He doesn't know what to believe. Having Nora over to his house is an attempt at normalcy, setting the table for more than his daughter and her friend, a ritual he hasn't been able to fulfil since Laurie left. He's searching for meaning in a world that feels meaningless. Paddy is the opposite. She has meaning. She has a mission. She has a higher calling. We can look at Paddy and not agree with her beliefs, but they are there, ironclad, incapable of breaking, let alone being fractured. Kevin is more susceptible to doubt because he's searching for meaning, even as he wonders if he's losing his grip on his sanity, the sins of the father creeping into his every waking moments. The dinner scene with Nora is awkward for a number of reasons. Between Kevin's work and his time spent with Nora, Jill has become even more untethered from a normal life. She's also been drawn to Nora for a while, but that was from a distance. To have Nora so close and being so normal, this feels like it must be a facade that Nora is portraying. What Jill doesn't know is that she's only seen a small part of the mosaic that is Nora. The gun and the breaking of the cup doesn't define her, it was just a hint of what she was dealing with internally. Jill has no idea there's been a moment of catharsis with Holy Wayne, and she doesn't know Nora well enough to understand how positively she responds to honesty. How can Jill understand this in a house that was once her crazy grandfather's, with her mother abandoning her for a cult, her father grappling with his own sanity, and her brother disappearing from her life? Honesty is an emotion that is far from normal in her household. It's not one that she comes into contact with often. Amy is also cold at the dinner table and is this because she is being loyal to Jill or is she a little jealous that Nora has Kevin's attention? Regardless of the ambiguity between the two of them it is clear Kevin has poured out some raw emotions with her while in the middle of one of his blackouts. Their grilling of Nora fails because she has nothing to hide. She answers honestly. If she had the gun in her bag still I think she would have given over her bag and answered honestly then too. But maybe the Nora who carried a gun isn't the Nora who would accept a dinner invitation. Of course, as I said before, Kevin is mortified by all of this, yet Nora takes all of this in a stride. Kevin doesn't understand, but Nora does. The world is fucked up, and these girls are acting accordingly. She feels it will become better over time, even though she has no idea or answer when that may be. Nora's anger comes to the fore when she finally meets Laurie. She cleans the feet of her sister-in-law and defends Matt when Laurie and Meg visit, even though she knows how frustrating and confrontational Matt can be. Nora can't help but land a blow Laurie's way after seeing the pain that Jill is in at home. Nora doesn't defend Kevin. That's the interesting part of this scene. Whatever happened between Kevin and Laurie is their business. But Laurie abandoning her children is too much for Nora, who lost both of her children through no fault of her own. Nora may have a level of peace that she hasn't had for the past few years, but there is still anger deep down, still a vein of spite that runs through her soul. Matt, of course, accepts the apology. He is a believer, just like Paddy. He is strong in his convictions, regardless of intent. He speaks to Meg understandingly, but while he does this, it is also condescending. He uses the practices of the guilty remnant on them and sees no harm in it because, in his mind, he is doing the work of the Lord. In this series, we see people struggle to find meaning, but we also see what can happen when people become too resolute in the belief systems they have embraced. 
What is the happy medium? This is a question that has vexed generations of people for centuries. I attempt to approach belief like a scientist. Believe what you believe, but be open for new information to allow your beliefs to grow. I would hate to think that my belief structure was so entrenched that it was the same as it was when I was a young man. There are fundamentals that I'll always hold on to. Try to remember to always be kind, show grace to those around you, maintain a generosity of spirit, listen before you react. Sometimes you live up to these and sometimes you forget them and sometimes you fail. But they're always somewhere in the psyche. So even if you forget or fail, you can return to them. But I also try to be open to new ideas and allow myself to grow with them. And that's for important aspects of life, but also for fun aspects. If I'd remained steadfast in my belief that Brussels sprouts were the work of the devil, I would have missed out on some damn tasty meals in the last few years. Laurie and Meg's relationship is fascinating as well. The recruiting of Meg hasn't gone to plan, and while she is a believer, she is not a follower. The guilty remnant have brought a strong-willed woman into the ranks, and they may not be able to tame her. She pushes against Laurie, who has given up thinking for herself and become one of many, a follower. With Patty gone, Laurie takes her place and even appropriates the smug look that their fearless leader exhibits at most times. There is a plan, and she is going to make certain it follows through. Meg's inability to curtail her emotions or even her desire to control them is an affront to Laurie. It could puncture her belief in decisions if she allows Meg to continue to talk, to act up. Laurie doesn't want to feel anything anymore, and Meg is unbridled emotion, lapping at the shores of Laurie's discontent. Laurie is in control. And then Jill arrives, and we see in a beautiful piece of acting that control and contentment dissipate in the sudden concern in her eyes and the slightest of dip in the corners of her mouth. The guilty remnant is right for Laurie, but she knows that this is not a place for Jill. You understand how Jill has ended up here. With her father gone, again she pushes away her closest friend and is left behind with the dog. For the briefest of moments I was worried she was going to kill the dog when she walked outside with the knife, but instead she cuts the rope and sets it free. And what a moment of relief that was as well. Ironically, the dog does seem calmer, does seem more relaxed. Maybe Kevin is right. Showing some love to something that has gone crazy is the way forward, whether it is a dog that has seen its owner depart or a father who was emotionally disturbed. Maybe he needed to show that love to Jill. She sets the dog free and in the process sets herself free from the pull of the Garvey house. She has one place left to turn and that is the guilty remnant. When Kevin attempts to show Paddy the same kindness, it isn't going to work. Paddy isn't a feral dog that has gone crazy. She's found focus. She's found belief. She is as steadfast in her way as Matt is in his. Kevin is the opposite, as we soon discover with the campfire and the nailed white shirts to the trees. We suddenly realise that Kevin is living a nightmare and that his story is a horror show compared to a lot of the other characters. His life is the Blair Witch Project, but there's nobody around to film Kevin, so we can only imagine what he's been getting up to when he blacks out. Dean is quite clearly a person who has worked very hard to stay off the grid. You wouldn't be surprised if he had a bunker in his own backyard somewhere. He's ready to follow through with murdering Paddy because he knows there's only one way forward from here for Kevin if he wants to return to his old life. 
But for all his flaws, and Kevin has many, he is not a bad person. He's made terrible mistakes, he's failed to navigate the ennui that has plagued him for a lot of his life, but he knows the right thing to do is to take Paddy home and suffer the consequences. This, of course, won't work for Paddy. She has her plan. She turned Gladys into a martyr after they stoned her to death in the woods. She's seen what has happened to Kevin and knows how it can be turned to her advantage. If Kevin were to take her back and admit to what happened, well, the police would probably just cover it up and help Kevin regain some footing in the world. Who are the police going to help? Their chief or the woman who runs the cult that everyone hates? Paddy is a zealot and there is only one place left for her to go. It is time for her to ascend, just like Gladys, into something else. Become a symbol. Become a meme. By taking her own life, she aims to become a symbol for her cause and a burden for Kevin. She knows her death will have more power than her life now. She's done everything she can. Her plan is ready to take place and now she can die knowing that Mapleton will finally understand her truth. And that truth is about to play out in a way that Kevin has to come to terms with fast because back home, all hell is about to break loose. Okay, let's get to the squid bits part of the podcast. Uh, We now know that Kevin and Dean caught the dog together. Uh, The town of Cairo in New York is named after the Egyptian city. It is the subject of an article in the May 1972 National Geographic Cairo, troubled capital of the Arab world. Uh, The painting of two antelopes seen on the wall in the cabin appears on pages 714 and 715 of the same magazine. In the article, it comes from a fresco excavated on the island of Thera, and the article is called Thera, Key to the Riddle of Minos. The article is about the mysterious disappearance of the first advanced civilization in Europe, the Crete-based Minoans. Minoans? Minoans? You know what I'm talking about. An archaeologist by the name of Spiridon Marinatus. Spiridon Marinatus. Spiridon Marinatus. I even practiced that. Anyway, take your choice of either three. Uh, The archaeologist was excavating the area to help prove that his theory that a volcano eruption led to the demise of the culture. This is now widely accepted as the explanation to what happened. The significance of the fresco was that the species depicted, Oryx bisa, is now only found in East Africa, leading to speculation that Crete sailors may have travelled further than previously thought. That's fascinating, isn't it? I think about that stuff all the time. Like, you know, the lost history, the stuff that we don't know. What has happened in this world that would just blow our minds if we could discover it? Ah, I love it. The arrangement of boots Kevin sees around the remains of the campfire is taken directly from a photo on page 595 of the National Geographic magazine. Uh, It shows young hikers' footwear drying around a fire before hitting the trail again in Yellowstone National Park. When Dean refers to himself as a guardian angel, Paddy references bells ringing. When guardian angels get their wings, that's in Frank Capra's 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life, Paddy quotes William Butler Yeats' 1896 poem, He 
bids his beloved be at peace, which is actually uh, quite a beautiful uh, poem, actually. I wonder if I can... uh, I was looking at it um, before, and I'm just at the computer. He bids... Okay. How about... I wasn't going to do this, but maybe... I hear the shadowy horses, their long manes a-shake, their hooves heavy with tumult, their eyes glimmering white. The north unfolds above them clinging, creeping night, the east her hidden joy before the morning break. The west weeps in pale dew and sighs passing away. The south is pouring down roses of crimson fire. O vanity of sleep, hope, dream, endless desire, the horses of disaster plunge in the heavy clay. Beloved, let your eyes half close and your heart beat over my heart and your hair fall over my breast, drowning love's lonely hour in deep twilight of rest and hiding their tossing manes and their tumultuous feet. Whew. Wow, that's great, right? Anyway, hopefully that reading wasn't too bad considering I had no intention of doing it until that very moment. Uh, back to the squid bits. Nora's gun is hidden inside the box for the game uh, Popomatic Trouble. Uh, Jules, therefore, opening uh, a box of troubles. That's what she's doing. The truck driver who delivers the packages to the guilty remnant is also the same guy who threw the drink at Gladys in the second episode. Ah, I've got some sad news for you. This episode is the final time we see Amy and the Frost Twins. Boo! I loved all of those characters. Bye-bye to them. In the book, Nora and Jill don't meet. Jill is happy Kevin is dating Nora, even though she finds her a little spooky. It also takes her mind off the Kevin-Amy dynamic. In the book, Nora's dog is named Woody, changed to Bubba for the show. Woody's fate is never revealed in the book, but Tom Parada has stated that in a deleted chapter from the novel that the dog went feral after witnessing the departure of Doug and the kids. Kevin abducting Patty is an invention of the show, as is the animosity between them. In the book, Kevin is never seen directly interacting with Patty, and as the mayor, prioritises appeasing the guilty remnant to defuse tensions. Uh, The dynamic between Laurie and Meg is beginning to differ to the novel too. In the book, they're really close, actually too close, and become friends, which is against the Guilty Remnant Protocol. They're sent off to an outpost where they often speak out loud, which is so different to Laurie's intolerance of Meg's outbursts on the show. In the book, Meg's mother departed instead of dying the day before. I like like the dying the day before. Jeez, that's such a... Such a tasty little change, and it gives us such an interesting motivation, and it does make you think, you know, that, that, that's what I love about this world. It's really well thought out, and you think, oh my God, yeah, imagine, imagine losing someone that you really cared about the day before. Like, you don't even get to imagine they've gone somewhere else. They, they just died. Oh, God, awful, awful. But great. (laughs) It's really great. Really explains Meg, who was a fascinating character. In the book, Jill worries about Kevin being alone in the house with Amy, who walks around in the mornings just in panties and flimsy little tank tops. Oh, panties. What an awful word. It is ambiguous whether they had sex in the TV show, but in the book they have a weird encounter where Kevin rests his hand on Amy's waist and she rests her head on his chest. Paddy references It's a Wonderful Life, which is a movie that Kevin watches on Christmas Day in the book. He decides he can no longer stand the film, which he used to like. 
Nora and Laurie never meet in the book. Laurie never takes over the guilty remnant and doesn't even have any real authority. And just a little reminder for you first-time watchers of The Leftovers, keep in the back of your head the Otis Redding number, I've Got Dreams to Remember. That plays at the dinner scene with Nora. Everyone who's re-watching with me. Anyway... Let's leave the squid bits at that. That brings us to the end of another episode of The Leftovers with only two eps left in this season. It's exciting stuff. Thanks once again for taking the time to listen and also thank you for all the kind words online. I see a lot of you recommending the podcast to people and the listenership is indeed going up. If you'd like to leave a top review on Apple Podcasts or suggest the podcast to new listeners, I'd be very grateful for that. Also, uh, come over to our Facebook page and either join the open side or the private one or both. The private page is where we do most of our chatting about the leftovers and actually all manner of TV, movies, books, etc. Everyone over there is great and it's a, it's a really nice group of people. You're more than welcome to join and I'd love to have your company there as well. Next Tuesday is the epic conversation with author and artist Ryan Hughes about his book XX, a novel graphic, and I cannot wait to share this with you. If you're listening to this before Easter kicks in, happy Easter, and I hope you have some time off, and uh, I hope you have time with loved ones. Let's finish with a quote from Alvin Ailey, the African-American dancer and choreographer who founded the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre and whose song helped open the latest episode of The Leftovers. Alvin said, From his roots as a slave, the American Negro, sometimes sorrowing, sometimes jubilant, but always hopeful, has touched, illuminated, and influenced the most remote preserves of world civilization. I and my dance theatre celebrate this trembling beauty. Trembling beauty. Oh, magnificent. Until then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.